And for the rest of us, if you have a Bible or can find one in the seat back in front of you, I invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I don't have the page number in the Pew Bible this morning for that, but it's just about the sixth book of the Bible. Hopefully you can find it. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. If you've seen the third Lord of the Rings movie, Return of the King, then you might remember that striking scene when the little hobbits near the end of their long quest, Mickey, if we could have the first slide, and they get their first sight, I don't know how well you can see that, of the imposing black gates of Mordor, which bar their way to completing their mission. These gates are massive, they're impenetrable, they're, they're over 60 feet tall and made of iron. And for perspective, if we can have that next slide, I don't know if you can see the little army below, <laughs> just like little ants before those gates. Have you ever felt like that? When a problem comes, when challenges arise, and there doesn't seem to be a way to go forward? Is anyone feeling a little bit that way about the challenges facing CBC as we seek to grow and to stretch and to become the kind of church that God can use which will have an impact on this part of New York and around the world for years to come? Well, in our story this morning, Joshua and the Israelites were facing just such a challenge. And yet God made a way where there seemed to be no way. When Joshua and the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River and they'd entered the Promised Land, the great walled city of Jericho was the first challenge facing them. Chapter 6, verse 1 sums up the challenge well. The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, or sorry, no one went out, and no one came in. Given its strategic location in that part of Canaan, guarding the land, if God's people were to take the land, they had to start by finding a way to take Jericho. As the old children's chant puts it, can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it, gotta go through it. <laughs> so there the Israelites stood, helpless before the massive walls of Jericho. As far as we can tell, the Israelites weren't familiar with siege warfare. They didn't have battering rams or siege engines. How in the world would they attack and defeat this great walled city? Well, before we get into the story, which gives us the answer, I'd like to take a step back and to recognize that this story, and the whole book of Joshua for that matter, has been a troubling one for many people. First of all, this story has to do with war, with bloody, grisly battles in which God's people are involved in fighting and killing other human beings. Second of all, God sanctioned this battle. Um, God leads the people into battle and gives them the victory. Third of all, Joshua's instructions in verse 17 and 19 remind God's people that God commands them to kill all the people of the city, women, men, and children. How do we make sense of all this in a world where we're especially sensitized to the horrors of war and, and to practices like jihad and ethnic cleansing? Well, there are no easy answers to these troubling questions, but let me make four observations which will at least help us to shed some light on this issue and to process it through. 
The first is that all wars in Joshua's day were holy wars. There were no secular wars back then. And, and so kings regularly relied on omens and, and messages from the gods about when or if they should go to war. They went to war in reliance on their gods to give them the victory. They often carried standards or, or uh, idols into battle with them. And, and if they were victorious, they gave thanks to their gods for the victory. All wars were religious endeavors. Second, the wars in Joshua are unique and stand out from other holy wars of the time in that the battles um, in the land of Canaan were not Israelite, the Israelites' battles. These battles weren't a case of where people went to war for political or, or uh, uh, economic means or uh, reasons and then depended on God or the gods to support their cause. No, the wars of Joshua were not Israel's wars at all. They were God's wars. The people weren't co-opting God in the service of their agenda. No, it was just the reverse. God was involving his people in accomplishing his ends. This is made clear in verse 14 of chapter 5, when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army and asks, are you for us or are you against us? And what does the commander reply? Neither. Literally, he says, no. No. As far as God is concerned, the question isn't, is God on our side? The real question is, are we on God's side? And we're going to come back to that a little later. But the third observation is that the book of Joshua reminds us of an attribute of God, which we see repeated again and again through Scripture, and that is, that God is a warrior. God is a warrior. Far from being a big jolly grandpa in the sky, God is fierce and strong, but thankfully also very, very good and just and fair. And God, in his fierce strength, repeatedly battles all that threatens to harm and to undo the goodness of his creation. God battles chaos. God battles evil. God battles injustice and oppression. God battles all that enslaves in order to set the captives free. God is a warrior. And if you turn against God, and you turn against the good that God has in mind for the world, you find that sooner or later, God battles you. That was the case with the Canaanites in this story. They were a notoriously wicked culture. The, the false gods that they worshipped had a reputation for being bloodthirsty and promiscuous. And, and we become what we worship. And so, so became the Canaanite culture. From what we know about Canaanite religion, it involved child sacrifice and shrine prostitution, the oppression of women, the enslavement of them. Canaanite culture was also known for incest and adultery and bestiality, among other vices. And so as God had done earlier in Scripture with the flood of Noah, God was deeply grieved and decided to punish and to destroy the wickedness of Canaan. Only instead of using a flood, this time God used his people. Now, um, God did not do this right away. God patiently endured the Canaanites' wickedness for hundreds and for hundreds of years. 
from the time of Abraham, if you're reading through the Bible, all the way until the time of Joshua. As the Canaanites went from bad to worse, and finally God said, enough. And then God, the warrior, went to war against this wickedness and those who perpetrated it. And God used his people to do it. He was trying to teach his people to love what was good and to hate what was evil like God does. And this leads to the fourth observation, which has to do with God's command that every living thing be destroyed and that the cities be burned and that all the plunder go into God's treasury. This is referred to as harem warfare. Harem means devoted, and it it sounds like, and it's related to the Arabic and the English word harem, as in those women who are devoted and set apart for the king as his wives. And so harem warfare is is a kind of warfare where everything is devoted to God. It's set apart to God. Because this is God's war. And so the spoils of war belong to God. And they're all offered up to God, either by being burned by fire or by being brought into God's treasury. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman has given the best explanation I've heard of of harem warfare. And Longman points out that in harem warfare, God moves out of his holy temple, that place where he was closeted away that was too holy for anyone to go except the high priest. And God moves out of that holy place and onto the battlefield. God moves onto the battlefield in all of God's holiness. Have you noticed that often in the wars of Joshua, the priests are involved? The priests have a central role and they, they carry the ark, which is the, the location of God's presence, which normally resides in the, the holy of holies in the temple. And the ark wasn't allowed to be touched or even looked at except by... by um, a very few consecrated priests, and they had to carry it on long poles. They weren't allowed to touch it either. If you read the book of Joshua earlier, you find out that the people are warned to stay about 3,000 feet back behind the ark. That's the better part of a mile. Because God is on the battlefield, and the whole place becomes holy. The army is not to go into battle unless they've sanctified themselves, unless they're ceremonially clean. And you'll notice that in the case of the Battle of Jericho, it it reads more like a worship service than a battle. The number seven keeps coming up, seven days, seven priests, seven times around. There are priests, there are horns being blown, the ark is paraded around. Very little is said about fighting or strategy. And so Longman concludes that in harem warfare, Everything is being brought into the presence of a holy God. Everything is being brought into the presence of a holy God. And nothing stained by sin can survive in God's holy presence. And so while we find it shocking that everything living that's Canaanite is destroyed in this kind of war, we should find it equally shocking that the Israelites are not destroyed in God's holy presence. Sin-stained though they are, God's people can go into battle with God present with them in the battlefield and they survive just fine. That is amazing. We'll come back later to the judgment and also the mercy that are inherent in this passage about harem warfare. Anyway, that does not by any means solve 
all the problems or the, the troubling questions with this passage. In fact, it makes some of them more troubling. But it at least explains the perspective from which God's people back then understood this. It's also worth noting that not all warfare that God directed the Israelites to engage in was harem warfare. Only certain battles were, specifically those in which God cleansed the land of, Can land of Canaan from centuries of wickedness which had infested it. And no human being had the right to declare harem warfare. It was God's prerogative. It was God's business to accomplish God's bigger purposes in the world as God dealt with the various nations and people of the world throughout history. All right, well, let's look at this story now against that backdrop. The story begins with Joshua encountering a man who has a drawn sword who turns out to be the commander of the Lord's army. Who is this man? Well, some say it's an angel. Others say it's a manifestation of God himself. Either way, this man represents God's presence. God has now come. God is present with his people. And this angel, a spokesman for God, has three important messages for Joshua. And these three messages are still relevant for us today. The first message is that God is now with Joshua and his people. God has come, come to lead the battle, come to give Joshua success. Joshua is not alone in the daunting tasks before him as he faces the great walled city of Jericho. God is there to help, to support, to strengthen, and to give the power and the aid that are needed. And that's what we need to know as we embark on all that God has called us to do today. We need to know that God is present with us because that makes all the difference. Second, as we've seen, God, the second message is that God is not on Joshua's side. God is not on Joshua's side. But Joshua is invited to be on God's side. That's a warning against presumption. You know, as Christians, it's easy to fall into the trap of, of being high and holy. And, and of thinking that we've got the, the moral high ground and that we must be right because God is on our side. And this attitude sometimes comes across uh, in our politics, in the way we talk about social issues which are important to us. And right there, we have, or right here in this passage, we have a warning from God to watch out. God says, I am not on your side. I am not on their side. That's the wrong question. The right question is, are you really on my side? Beware of co-opting God for your cause. Beware of taking up God's name to bolster your agenda. You know, that's at least one thing that it means to take God's name in vain, which is one of the Ten Commandments prohibits that. We take God's name in vain when we attach God's name to our agenda. When we use God's name to score political points. When we use God to raise, fund or to run, raise funds or to pursue fame or success. God is not our lackey. God is not our messenger boy. God is not our poster child. God is high and holy and we need to regularly fall on our faces and humble ourselves 
and let God search our hearts with the question, are we really on God's side? Which leads to the third message this commander has for Joshua. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. God is holy. God is other. Our place is reverence and humility. Our place is to press the reset button on all of our passions and our priorities and our causes and our crusades and our visions and our purposes and to stand in awe again before the holy God. And then we'll let him direct us humbly in what we should do. And so the question is, are we really on God's side? And we best not be too quick in answering that question. And that's something we're doing as a church right now, right? We're, we're, we're giving CBC back to God. We're, we're seeking God's face. We're asking God what, what he wants to do with this church. We're submitting our personal ideas and our personal preferences back to God. Okay, so those are the three messages the commander brings. Then moving on, verse 2 of chapter 6. In Joshua's case, God assures Joshua that it is in fact God's objective to give Jericho into the hands of God's people. And God does wish to use Joshua and his forces to this end. And so the outcome is determined before the battle begins. The people need only to faithfully follow God's directions. To march around the city once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day to march around seven times. And then at the signal of the long trumpet blast to shout. And that's all. To march in religious procession and to shout. And at that shout, the walls fall down. And everyone goes straight in and takes the city. Now there is a battle at the end, but the scripture gives the actual battle only half a verse. Now contrast that with the battle of Ai in chapter 8. That battle involves intense military strategy. The story describes the number of troops, how they were divided up, how one company set an ambush behind the city, how they used fire and smoke to signal the other company, the timing of how this took place, how the battle raged, and what the, ca the casualties were. The battle of Ai reads like a battle account. Very different from the Battle of Jericho. So what's the point? Well, there's a tension here and there's a contrast. Jericho reads more like a religious procession and God miraculously does the heavy lifting. But Ai reads like a military account and God gives the victory, but the army has to earn it the old-fashioned way. And I think this is attention that we experience in the Christian life when we struggle through what it means to have faith and what it means to walk by faith. I like to put it this way. Sometimes faith stands back and waits on God. Other times faith gets involved and works. Sometimes faith waits. Sometimes faith works. Sometimes faith waits. In faith, we stand back. We, we take our hands off. We be still and know that God is God and we wait and we trust God to do the amazing things that only God can do. Other times, 
faith works. Faith is active. We roll up our sleeves. We obediently follow God, all the while trusting that God will provide the strength to accomplish what God has called us to do. You know, our own Rob Rosati is a good example of this, and he gave me permission to share a little bit of his story. Several years ago, Rob had a drug habit which was um, ruling and ruining his life, and he just couldn't kick it after years of trying. But then Jesus moved into Rob's life and miraculously and instantaneously took away all of Rob's desires for drugs and set him free completely. It was a Jericho moment. That was faith waiting on God for what God would do. But since then, like the rest of us, there are other things that God's been working on in Rob's life. And God hasn't just instantly fixed all those things for Rob like God hasn't done for many of us, for you and me. No, Rob has had to work hard at it with the strength that God provides. One way that I like to picture this is um, God pulling out a brand new power saw, you know, a power tool. And God takes the thing and he buzzes right through this big hunk of wood and we're just looking on in awe. And, And God says, see what this power can do? And we say, wow, yeah, that's awesome. Praise God. And then God hands the saw to us and says, all right, now you're going to learn to use this thing. You're going to learn to put this power to work. You're going to become an expert at it. You're going to to use my power. So roll up your sleeves and go to work. Learn to put my power to work by faith in your life. As you learn to rely on me, to to fight battles, to overcome challenges, to to scale heights. And so what does faith look like for this church? Do we need to wait or do we need to work or some of both? I'm not sure I totally have the answer yet, but that's what we need to be discerning together as we look forward to what God is doing and what is going to do in us and through us in the months ahead. All right, back to our story. Did you notice as the story was read that a big deal is made about exactly when the people are to shout? Verse 5, Joshua says, When you hear the priest sound a long blast on the trumpet, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the walls of the city will collapse. Then in verse 10, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. And then verse 16, The seventh time around the city, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. This is the climax. This is the big moment. This is the moment when the walls are going to fall down. Joshua says, uh, says, Shout, and, and the people take a deep breath, and then cut to commercial. The action stops in mid breath. Did you notice that? Verse 17. The narrator breaks off the story. Joshua says, shout, finally. The narrator breaks off the story and starts talking about Joshua's instructions about harem warfare and about Rahab the prostitute. I think this is a case of, now that I have your attention, we interrupt this regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. And verses 17 to 19 are that super important announcement. 
We've already talked about harem warfare, about how this is God's battle and God determines that everything was to be given over to him and that all the Canaanites were to be destroyed. But right at this point, there's an important exception. Rahab and her family, they're to be saved. All the Canaanites are destroyed completely, but Rahab and her family are saved. This is, I think, a second tension in this story, a tension between God's judgment and God's salvation. And this tension is further highlighted if we step back and we look at this story in the context of the bigger picture of the book of Joshua, which we're going to do for just a minute if Mickey can put up that next slide. We get to discover another chiasm in the book of Joshua. The first eight chapters of the book of Joshua are a chiasm. They're arranged so that the first story matches the last story, and the second one matches the second to last, and so on until you get to the middle. And so notice in this structuring, B&B Prime, the story of Rahab is paired with the story of Achan, which we're going to look at next Sunday. So we have Rahab and Achan. Rahab is, is this pagan Canaanite prostitute who shows faith in Israel's God and she hides the spies and so she's saved. Achan, on the other hand, is a true Israelite from the tribe of Judah. But he fails to trust and to obey his own God. He steals and he hides some of the plunder from the battle of Jericho, which was to be devoted to God, and so he's destroyed. And here's this tension again between judgment and salvation. When God, who is a warrior, comes to fight on behalf of his people, there's a separation that takes place. God's people are separated from God's enemies. The former are saved, the latter are destroyed. In the Bible, there's no salvation without judgment. And there's no judgment apart from salvation. So the question inevitably rises, how do you make sure that you're on the right side of this judgment-salvation issue? Well, Achan and Rahab teach us. They teach us that it's not just about upbringing or the, the family that you came from or the church you've always attended. It's not about heredity. It's not about past history. It's about aligning yourself with Israel's God in faith. And even a Canaanite prostitute can be embraced as one of God's people if she'll turn to God and put her trust in him. And even a true son of Judah can become an enemy of God if he rebels against what God has clearly commanded him to do and refuses to put his faith in God. We'll talk more about Achan next week, but, but don't miss the lesson that Rahab teaches us here in verse 17 of our passage. And that is that while God is a warrior, God always stands with arms open wide to his enemies to welcome in any who are willing to put their trust in God. And that's very good news for all of us. Us Rahabs of the world. If we're willing to put our trust in God, if we're willing to trust God's way and to embrace God's objectives and to throw in our lot with God's purposes, then we can be assured that God will fight powerfully for us. No barrier no wall, no obstacle can stand in God's way. Whether it be the walls of Jericho or the gates of Mordor, 
that's good news for this church. And it's good news for each of us because the Christian life isn't easy street, right? There are battles we face. There are obstacles we encounter. We, we try to follow God. We try to grow in our faith and our character. And sometimes it's just plain hard. We need a, a powerful divine warrior on our side. Maybe sometimes to supernaturally blast what's in our, our way as we just stand back and we wait in faith. But many other times, as we work, as we battle, as we press through in faith, we need God to come to our aid, to give us the strength, to give us the victory. And that's what Jericho is about. And so the, the falling of the walls of Jericho remind me of an interview that I once heard. It was back in 1994. It was on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Allied um, invasion of Normandy, that decisive battle in the European theater of World War II. And, and that year, all the major television networks ran anniversary programs, which included interviews with aging veterans. And, and one of the programs paired two contrasting interviews back to back. The first one was um, with a Marine who had landed on Omaha Beach. He was in the, the thick of the fighting, and he recalled horrors in this interview, which sounded like scenes from Saving Private Ryan. And um, this aging veteran recalled back then looking around at all the bloody casualties surrounding him and concluding, we're going to lose. But then the next interview was a U.S. reconnaissance pilot who had flown over the whole battle area back on that day. And he viewed the carnage on the beaches and the hills, but he also witnessed the success of the Marines and the penetration of the paratroopers and the effectiveness of the aerial bombardments. And he looked at everything that was happening and he concluded, we're going to win. Which conclusion was more accurate? Well, the second one was the pilot saw the big picture. And if he could have communicated with each soldier on the ground, no doubt he would have encouraged them with those words. Hang in there. Fight harder. Struggle more valiantly. We're going to win. And I think that's what today's passage does for us. For those of us who are wholeheartedly and humbly committed to God's cause. It reminds us that we have a warrior God who fights for us and with us. A God so powerful that he can cause huge, imposing, impenetrable walls to just fall down before us. Whatever it takes to accomplish his objectives, to achieve his purposes for us and in us and through us. So here's the challenge that I want to leave us with. Are there any overwhelming obstacles in your life? Now, for right now, I'm not talking about obstacles which stand in the way of your plans for yourself or your wants or your needs or your comforts. Let's limit it to obstacles which stand in the way of God's objectives to work God's will in you and through you. Maybe it's an area of sin that you're struggling with. Maybe it's a character trait which you know needs to change, but you can't seem to change. Maybe it's something you strongly sense God wants you to do, but, but this obstacle is just preventing you from accomplishing it. The challenge is, with that obstacle in mind, to look again at what God did to the walls of Jericho. And then to say, okay, God, 
I'm going to trust you to do something similar, whether you do it quickly and dramatically or whether you do it slowly and gradually, but to do something similarly powerful in my life as well. Let's pray. God, we have to confess that often we um, lack faith. We look at things from a human perspective. We grow tired and weary from waiting, from battling, and we just give up and we think it's never going to happen. And we think, you know, if it was only seven days that we had to wait for the walls to fall down, we could hang in there that long. But for some of us, it's been seven years or longer. But I pray that you would um, afresh reveal yourself to us as the powerful warrior who, if it's really your will, if you've given us the conviction that it's something you want to see happen, God, that you powerfully as we work and we wait, we'll come and make it happen. So increase our faith, increase our expectation in Jesus' name. Amen.